the teams you care about. Mac Jones is good. That's not the question. The question is, is he good enough to win repeatedly in this loaded AFC? The stories that matter to you. If I'm Xander Bogarts, I need three things in order to get over that insulting contract offer. This is your home for New England sports. Jason Tatum, superstar. Book it. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV-AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Brady Farkas Show on a Wednesday right here on WDEV-AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Good-sized show again today, 5.30 until 6.40. Then at that point, we turn it over to Red Sox baseball. Sox looking to avoid the sweep, looking to salvage a game here against the Twins. Another tough loss last night. We're going to react to what Henry McKenna told us yesterday about the Patriots' offense. We're going to talk Red Sox with Tom Karen of Nesson about uh, 5.45. I spoke with Freddie Coleman of ESPN earlier today. That interview will be available on our podcast channel shortly. And I got a couple of very interesting messages yesterday after the show ended on UVM men's basketball. So we'll attempt to answer some of those questions here uh, throughout the course of the day. You can get in as always on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line, 802-585-3026. That's your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts of the Ready Farkas Show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber. They are Vermont's most complete, locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. You know, I'm pretty bothered by something that I heard Tom Curran of NBC Sports Boston say yesterday. And Tom Curran is great. He's great. He's opinionated. He's funny. He's connected. I really like Tom Curran. That's why we play so many Tom Curran cuts on this show. He knows the Patriots very, very well. But I'm really bothered by something he said yesterday. He was being asked about expectations for the Patriots season ahead. Listen to this. Matt Jones improves over 2021. It's going to be tough. That means his offensive line has to congeal. Additionally, the outside receivers, Nelson Aguilar, Jonu Smith, and of course, Devontae Parker, have to show up and play better than they did last year. I'm less concerned about the record and more concerned about the development because I really believe this season is a bridge year for 2023. That right there is what bothers me. Guys, can we play the very end of that cut one more time? Because I really believe this season is a bridge year for 2023. Bridge year for 2023. This is about, that is about the last thing that I want to hear when it comes to talking about the Patriots. The phrase bridge year should not be in the vocabulary for the New England Patriots in 2022. It makes absolutely zero sense. And if that is the plan, if a bridge year is the plan, that is an absolute embarrassment to us as Patriots fans, like a huge slap in the face. This team made the playoffs a year ago. This team made the playoffs with a rookie quarterback a year ago. My expectation now is that you are building 
towards a Super Bowl. That's it. Bridge year is a step back. I am expecting you to try to take steps forward. I know you may not win it. I'm not that naive. But my expectation is that you are going for it. And a bridge year is an admission that you are taking a step backwards to which I say, why? There is no reason for this organization to be trying to take a step backwards or be willing to take a step backwards. I know you may not win it, but my expectation is that you're going for it. When Tom Brady left and you played the year out with Cam Newton, that was a bridge year. The Seahawks going to Geno Smith, that is a bridge year. Okay, When you lose your star quarterback, you get a one-year grace period to kind of figure it out. The Patriots have already had that. The bridge year is done. There are no more bridge years. 2020 with Cam, that's your bridge year. That's your get-me-to-the-other-side year. 2021 when Mac was a rookie, that's your growing pains year. 2022, this should be full steam ahead. This is trying, this is about trying to get to a Super Bowl. I don't want to hear nonsense about bridge years. I don't want to hear nonsense about, oh, we're going to take the year off. We're going to reset the cap. No, no, no. We've done that. 2020 was that. 2020, the Patriots sat out free agency. 2020, the Patriots lost their quarterback. 2020, the Patriots signed the gap quarterback in Cam Newton. 2020, the Patriots went 7-9 and and missed the playoffs. 2021, Pat spent all the money, right? They spent all the money. Jalen Mills, Devon Godshaw, Matt Judon, Kendrick Bourne, Nelson Aguilar, Hunter Henry, John U. Smith. They spent all the money for a reason, and that reason was to win. We were told 2020 gap year, 2021 growing pains, but we've spent big here, so the, the foundation is laid. 2022, the expectation should be that we go for it. What are we doing here if we're talking about bridge years? The rookie quarterback contract last four years before you start to get expensive, five years before you're really expensive. While you are in the rookie contract mode for your quarterback, you are in all systems go. That's where the Patriots should be right now with Mac Jones. There are no gap years anymore. There are no taking years off. There are no more laying the table for the future. We talk about the Red Sox setting a foundation You set a foundation in baseball, and it takes you years, and I accept that patience. I don't have the same patience in the NFL. The NFL allows you the opportunity to turn things around quickly. The Patriots have had now two years post-Tom Brady to turn it around. Now the expectation is that you are trying to win. Joe Burrow got to the Super Bowl in his first full season, his second season overall. Kyler Murray got his team better in year two. Justin Herbert not making the playoffs in year two was seen as a disappointment. This is a Patriots team that should have one goal. Mac Jones, year two, get better. Get better, make the playoffs, try to be winning the Super Bowl. And anything other than those expectations, to me, are a huge letdown and a huge insult. In the NFL, you get time to get things right when... You've got a horrible cap situation. Patriots have already been there and done that. They've taken care of that. When you get a new quarterback, we've been there and done that too. Or when you get a new head coach, 
never applied here. Those are the scenarios where fan base generally gives you patience. Bad cap space, bad cap situation, new head coach, new quarterback. Pats at one point had two of those three. They're already done. My grace period for you is over. You should be trying to win. I don't want to hear about bridge years for 2023. I'm not worried about 2023. Baseball, I worry about the future. Football, I worry about the now. And right now, this is bothersome to hear. Tom Curran, who loves Mac Jones, who has spoken his praises for months, for a year plus, who has said he's the best thing to happen for this team in the last five years, he all of a sudden thinks this is a bridge year. I am not down with that. Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio joined me earlier. I played that cut for him. Here's what he said about it. But it is maybe a thing from the fact that people are worried about who's going to be calling offensive plays when it comes to Mac Jones going into his second year, and a lot of people are panicking by what we saw in the last preseason game against the Las Vegas Raiders where they looked sloppy, they looked unorganized, and Mac Jones did not look like the quarterback we thought we were going to see take a jump up in year number two. So that's where that comes from. I, I, I don't care where it comes from. I don't care where it comes from. It needs to be a phrase that is taken out of the vernacular. I don't do bridge years for a team that made the playoffs a year ago. I just don't. Right? My Seahawks, they are they, they are stepping back. Right? Russell Wilson's gone. You've still got his cap hit. You've kind of you, you drafted better. You reset the table. You get DK Metcalf signed, but you're playing the year with Geno Smith. I accept that after 10 years of being really good with Russell Wilson, the Seahawks are probably going somewhere between 5-12 and 12 and 8-9. and nine. They're not making the playoffs. They're probably not playing meaningful games into December. They're just going to be very average at best to potentially the worst team in the league. I accept that for one year. This is that one year. This is their bridge year. Next year, it's time to figure it out. Next year, you get the quarterback of the future. That's how quick you get in the NFL to make things right. The Pats have already had their time to make it right. Played with Cam, went 7-9, and nine, reset the cap, set the table for the next offseason. 2021, you spend big. Go bring in all the pieces. You get the rookie quarterback. You let him grow and develop. Now, this year, I expect you to be in the conversation. Now, I don't think the Patriots have done enough to be in the conversation. That's a separate conversation. But the expectation should not be a bridge year. Milo over in North Troy. Brady, as a lifelong Patriots fan, we're going back to what we were in the 70s and 80s. The bill is coming due for the last 15 great years. I, I, don't, I don't accept that. I understand spending some time at the back of the line and not winning every year. I do understand that. And I could say, hey, Patriots fans just kind of got to eat that because of all the winning you've done. I can understand that too. But it doesn't mean that we're playing that we're not playing to win. Bridge year tells me you're not really invested. And the Patriots certainly should be invested. Braden over in Craftsbury. Brady, forget the word expectations. What do you think would make this season a success? I'll ask that, too, to the text line. What do you think a successful season would be for the Patriots? For me, it's only a success if the Patriots make the playoffs. 
given what has transpired around them in the AFC, making the playoffs again would be a success. And that's disappointing because the expectation should be, I just told you, that you're competing for a Super Bowl. But I don't think the Patriots have done a good enough job to make that a reality. So, yes, making the playoffs would would be a success, unfortunately. It should be playing, you know, being in the Super Bowl conversation. But I don't think it is. Making the playoffs would be the success. You look at the Patriots, they are somewhere between the 8th and 11th best team in the AFC. Like, who can we definitively say the Patriots are better than? They're definitively better than the Jets. That's one. They're better than the Jags. That's two. They're better than Houston. That's three. They're better than the Steelers. That's four. And without Deshaun Watson, they're probably better than Cleveland, but not by much because Cleveland's roster is so good. So I've got them better than Jets, Jags, Texans, Steelers, and probably the Browns. That's better for sure in my mind than five teams. Miami, the Raiders, and Tennessee are probably all comparable. If you say they're worse than all than those three teams, they're the 11th best team. If you say they're the they're they're better than all those teams, they're the eighth best team. That's outside the playoffs. That's looking outside. That's on the outside looking in before the season's even started. They're not as good as Buffalo. They're not as good as Baltimore. They're not as good as Cincy. They're not as good as the Colts or Denver, Kansas City, or the Chargers. So you're already on the outside of the playoff picture. At best, you're eighth. At worst, you're 11th. If you can bust through that door to get to the playoffs, then yeah, then I guess that's a success. It shouldn't be that way. Justin Herbert, the expectation is the Chargers are playing for a Super Bowl. J.C. Jackson, Khalil Mack, boom, make huge moves. Denver Broncos' expectation is we're playing for a Super Bowl. Go get Russell Wilson, huge move. Teams are making moves here with their quarterback situations to play for the Super Bowl. And right now, sadly, the Patriots, they haven't done enough to be in that conversation. They should be mentioned in those same breaths. They are not, though, because they just didn't do enough. So getting to the playoffs, unfortunately, is, again, to me, that is a success. Matt says successful seasons giving the playoffs. I agree. Steve says winning a playoff game. That, if that's what you think, that's fine. I understand that. Of course, winning a playoff game, that would be a success too. I don't know that it's possible. I don't know that I see it happening. In fact, I don't see it happening as we sit right now. There's always injuries. There's always bad weather that impacts games. So yeah, sure, it could happen. But the Patriots right now, between 8th and 11th in the AFC, and that's on the outside looking in a team I know is not going to the playoffs and a team I know is falling way short of expectations is the Boston Red Sox. Red Sox lose yesterday. Another tough one falling to the twins, blowing a lead, lack of shutdown innings, misplayed ball by Alex Verdugo here to break it down. Now with us is a uh, Tom Karen, our Red Sox insider at Nesson. Cue the TC music montage people. Looking for the latest information on the Red Sox? Not only is David Ortiz a Hall of Famer, but he is one of the best of the best. How about the Bruins? Are they a Stanley Cup champion? Probably not as presently constructed, but they're a playoff team. And you've come to the right place. We talk now with Nesson Insider Tom Karen. 
Baseball isn't boring because there's still nothing like the communal gathering of fans at a baseball game. On the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. We just talked about Tom Curran. Now we go out to Tom Karen, our Red Sox insider over at Nesson. Tough loss last night again, TC. Thanks for being with us. So how are you? Doing well, Brady. How you doing? Excellent. Appreciate you being with us as always. You know, right before the show today, I read a very interesting story from Chris Cotillo of Mass Live about Jaron Duran. And Duran's been sent down recently to AAA, really opened up about his struggles, both physically and mentally. I thought it was pretty interesting. And, you know, a lot of people, myself included to some degree, have been eager to run Duran out of town. But it was an eye opening look again at what people go through and what young players go through. And I appreciated his, his candidness on the whole thing. Yeah. And, and you know, I think it's important to, uh, to, to keep that stuff in mind. We were talking about it on the show last night with a guy like Cutter Crawford, you know, some of these young pitchers didn't pitch at all in 2020. There were no minor league games, right? So you're talking about a, uh, a new generation of player and pitcher that that's kept making up for lost time that has lost development time. Uh, and if you're in Boston, you know, you're not getting the chance that you might have in Kansas City or in Pittsburgh where you get thrown into a team that's going to lose 100 games regularly and, and you get to develop. You're expected to perform. And and Jaron Duran, because of the injury to Kike Hernandez, was thrown into an everyday center field position. It's still an infielder trying to learn the outfield. You know, Mookie Betts did it uh, flawlessly. Nobody else is Mookie Betts. We know that. Uh, so I agree. I thought it was interesting to read the mental part of uh, what he was battling. Now that said, you know, when he talks to the media, he doesn't help himself a whole lot. Yeah. Sometimes you think of that ESPN interview when he, when he drops a don't come cheer for us when we start playing well, that's not what you need to be saying uh, when you're having a tough season, just uh, stay humble. Like he was in this piece uh, and, and talk, you know, be transparent with what you're going through. And I'm glad he finally did that today. Speaking of transparent, I was talking about this with uh, with Buster Olney the other day. Do you feel that organizations can or should be more transparent in their plans? And I, they don't have to give the give the whole farm away. But if High and Bloom had come out or ownership had come out a couple of years ago and said, "Look, we want to be competitive at the big league level, but we also don't. We also want to build the foundation of this thing." And, you know, it might take us a little bit to be big spenders, but we are going to get there. If they had done that, if they had laid out that plan, would that have been good or would, would we have been killing them anyways? We'd have been killing them earlier, I think. That's the way it goes in Boston, right? Uh, there was a Ben Charrington who talked about the bridge year and, and then, you know, the Dan Shaughnessy led pitchfork brigade with torches storming the castle. Yeah. Uh, bridge year became the rallying cry for an organization that didn't care. I think some other organizations, especially in baseball can be more transparent. The Red Sox have the resources and, and charge the, the prices that fans rightfully have, a, have, a, have a right to expect them to be in contention every year. Now we know that's impossible, but nobody here paying paying 75 bucks to park their car and who knows what for tickets and hot dogs and, and a beer. Uh, and nobody wants to hear that you're investing that money to see a game for a team that is two years away from being competitive. So I, I don't know that you can do it here. I think realistically it's very hard to do it in Boston. 
Tom Karen, Sox Insider, and Nesson with us here on the Brady Farkas Show ahead of Game 3 against the Minnesota Twins. Here our coverage begins at 640. You know, it was interesting. I was listening to the radio pregame show yesterday, and Will Fleming and Rob uh, and uh, Mutt were talking about kind of the idea of team leadership. And we've seen a number of mental mistakes here in the last couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, a couple again on uh, on Monday night, you know, Devers figured, uh, forgetting how many outs there are, Verdugo's base running, wonder, et cetera. And Will Fleming made the point that there's nobody in this locker room or this clubhouse that will kind of stand up and hold people accountable. And the question for me is, is that just because this team has great leaders that aren't vocal leaders in the way Pedroia was? Or is that a sign that the team and the veterans are checked out and it's no longer worth it? No, I, well, I think it's a couple of things. And, and we talked about it on the show, too, last night. Maybe turn off the radio once in a while and watch that. <laughs> uh, you know, a couple of interesting points. Tim Wakefield's had a really good point that he's talked about from time to time, that he thinks that the economics of the game have have basically forced out the middle class uh, of, of the player in the clubhouse. And by that, he means, you know, you've got your high, high, high price players and your rookies. Uh, and he said, even back, you know, 20 years ago when, when he was coming along, uh, the, the highest price players are generally not leaders. They are great players. They do their thing. You hope maybe there's some leadership, but you know, I mean, David Ortiz was, was a leader at the end. Right. I don't want to say he he was I'm not saying negative. I'm not saying he was a clubhouse problem, but he wasn't really a leader in you know, three or four or five. He was a leader at the plate. He was their you know best clutch hitter. But when he was, you know, in, in, in the middle of his career, sort of making himself the player he became right, creating his Hall of Fame legacy. He wasn't a guy who was going to be talking to guys in the clubhouse and telling them this, that, that, right? It was the Trot Nixons. It was the Johnny Damons. It was the guys who, you know, they're making plenty of money, but they weren't the elite top 20 salary guys, okay? So that's a long answer to sort of say, where are those guys now, right? Who have been those best sort of clubhouse leaders in the last 10 years? The Johnny Gomeses, the Mitch Morelands, the, the you know, Brock Holt was one of those guys, okay? You're seeing fewer and fewer of that class of player in a clubhouse. Uh, you've got the, you know, and, and listen, Xander Bogarts is a quiet guy. So that's, you know, he's the leader of this team, but he leads by example. He leads by showing you the right way to go about your business. But I don't think Xander Bogarts is a guy who's going to pull <clears throat> Alex Verdugo aside and and say, dude, you got to. How'd you drop that ball last night? You know, like, and that was a brutal error that led to the grand slam last night in the fifth inning. Yeah. Um, how do you not tag up? I'm not sure that you know when Jaron Duran led that inside the park grand slam fall in behind him on that Friday night in July. Uh, if you remember, Alex Cora said, "Well, that's best discussed by the players." And then the media went to him and he said, "Yeah, no, I haven't talked to anybody. Nobody came and talked to me." So Kike Hernandez a little bit of that guy, but he was injured at that time and has missed a lot of that time. So I just don't know that you have that guy. Kyle Schwarber was that guy last year. Hunter Renfro was that guy last year. I think when you sift through the mistakes that were made this year, and, and you can go through the pros and cons of what Hyam Bloom has done over three years, but I think losing those guys as clubhouse presence, as, as you know, Schwarber, we know what he's doing offensively. But they really lack his presence. If you remember last year, he came here, instantly became a leader. I think yeah. the hope was Eric Hosmer would be a little bit of that, and I think he is that, but he's injured. 
right? So so now his voice is not, you know, he, this should be at a point now, he's been here a few weeks, been here a month. His voice should be growing in that clubhouse, but the injury took that aside. Tommy Pham's got a little bit of grit, a little bit of fire, but again, new guys, it takes a little while for those guys. So that's a long answer to your question, but I, I think this group doesn't have that. It's not vocal leadership, but it's just the guy who calls everybody together Monday night after that ugly loss and says, hey, guys, we got to get our heads out of our you-know-what, and, and we got to sharpen up and focus, and let's go. And, and you know, it's not discipline. It's not yelling. It's just we're, we're not going to put up with this as, as teammates. We got to get going. They don't, I don't think they have that guy right now. As we all kind of turn the page mentally to next year, the Aaron Judge discourse is going to continue to get louder and louder, and it's going to fuel our offseason talk for a while. The Red Sox need a lot. We know that. We know they're going to have money to play with, and they're going to have to use it. Are you more inclined to try to make that kind of big move and get a guy like Aaron Judge, or are you more inclined to go and say, hey, we're going to get Andrew Benatendi and Mitch Hanniger? Like, what what kind of plan do you like better? Well, you're talking to to a guy who cares about TV ratings, okay, not just wins and losses. <laughs> so true. I want Aaron Judge. I want Aaron Judge, of course. Wait, you know, listen. In 2004, 2008, 2007, 2000, you know, and for, for most of the history of this ownership group, the Red Sox have been in on every big free agent name. There was no name too big for the Red Sox to at least consider, right? Trying to engineer the A-Rod deal, right? Trying to, you know, you bring, you know, signing Manny Ramirez even before this ownership group, right? Bringing in... Uh, uh, players and locking them up and signing them for long-term deals. Well, there's no reason on earth, you know. But and, and I, Dave O'Brien and I had had a conversation about this prior to one of the games uh, about a month ago before the trade deadline. When there were rumors that Shohei Otani might be on the market, Red Sox should be the first ones calling. Yeah. Now it doesn't mean they can make the deal. Uh, they, they, you know, why aren't they in on Juan Soto? Why aren't they in on everybody? And maybe they are. Maybe they call and kick the tires and say, we're not ready to blow up the whole thing. We're not at the point yet where we can do that in our development of this organization that, that Iron Bloom wants to put together to be a sustainable uh, contender. But, yeah, I want Aaron Judge. You want to make a statement this offseason? Sign Aaron Judge. Give him what it takes. Do Give a little yeah to the Yankees, <laughs> and, and let's get back to business. Yes, I want Aaron Judge. Tom Karen, Red Sox insider over at Nesson. Watch the television broadcast tonight. First pitch is uh, is 740. So, TC, we appreciate it. Hopefully the Red Sox can uh, can get a game tonight. And hopefully by the time we talk next week, uh, you know, they're not uh, more than 10 games back in the wild card. Well, I mean, again, there's a pulse, but it's flickering pretty bad. I, I will say now that, you know, the Sawamura and Davis moves to bring up a couple of young guys. Zach Kelly's been doing this at the AAA level all year. Uh, it's time to see what, what he can do. It's time, you know, it's probably time to move on from Ryan Brazier. Uh, we saw that last night. He was really good uh, for a World Series team a couple of years ago, but he doesn't have it. It's, you know, it's, it's now it's time to see who's part of the future, who's not. Uh, maybe you win a few games doing that. That's great. But right now the, the key thing is start to figure out what the hell you're going to do with this next year. And, uh, and that's why we're watching now. TC, next week we can play who's in more trouble, the Red Sox or the Patriots approaching week one. So I can't wait for that. <laughs> yeah, be, I hope we got extra time. I, I got extra time for the day. TC, appreciate it. Thanks, Brady.
Absolutely. Tom Karen, Red Sox insider over at Nesson. Sox and Twins coming up about 45 minutes from now. Our coverage begins at 640. Uh, message from Peter and Williston on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. Great point there by Wakefield about mid-level salaried players. Like where have the Kevin Millars gone? That is a good point. And it's not something that I had really thought about. We really want our we, you want your best players, you want your highest paid players to be your team leaders. They are all not, they're not all wired that way. Now, I look in this clubhouse and I think who those guys could be. Kike Hernandez, yes, he's been hurt a lot. And maybe Verdugo can grow into that role, but they, they, they just don't have those kind of guys right now. Christian Vasquez probably could have been that guy. Obviously, he's gone. Um, we're going to talk about the Aaron Judge stuff in the next hour. We're going to get to more of the TC stuff tomorrow, and we do have a full show and all 90 minutes available to us. I encourage you to go read the Jaron Duran story. Chris Cotillo, Mass Live, wrote the story on Duran. Duran was very open and very honest and very transparent about his struggles. And I am a sucker for when somebody is transparent and when somebody is vulnerable and open. So I always gravitate to those guys and I root for them. You can't let this story impact your thoughts on Duran as a player, but it was very interesting about his vulnerabilities. And he said, look, I'm, I'm playing poorly. I do hear what people are saying about me. So often athletes tell us they don't listen. Duran's telling you that I do hear it and it does bother me. And I'm trying to work my way through it. He's talked about, not wanting to be a burden to guys in the clubhouse. So that's why he doesn't share his struggles with everybody else. And so kind of his, kind of his battle is a lone wolf. I thought it was very, very interesting. Again, it doesn't mean you shouldn't trade him in the off season or whatever, but I like guys who are vulnerable. It is the Brady Farkas show on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEV radio.com. We'll get to CBS national news update. And then yesterday, Henry McKenna of Fox sports told us finally what the plan is for the Patriots offense, but there is a problem with it. We'll tell you what that is after the CBS news update right here on WDEV AM and FM. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas show on WDEV AM FM and WDEV radio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEV radio.com. Red Sox baseball, 35 minutes from now. Sox looking to salvage tonight against the Twins. Michael Waka on the mound for the Sox. Sox now nine games back in the uh, AL wildcard chase. Tom Karen says it's a, a fleeting pulse. There's no pulse. They're, they're done. They're, they're, they're just, they're done. There's too many teams to pass, so they're done. Um, I'm far more interested right now in the Patriots. The Patriots, it is now clear, are making a long-term play with their offense. Yesterday, we had Henry McKenna of Fox Sports on, and he finally gave us a coherent answer about what direction the Pats offense is moving in and about why they felt the offense needed to change. broader picture of how they're going to build an offense around Mac Jones, and they thought, at least on paper, that a love child between Belichick's offense, Shanahan's offense, and McVeigh's offense would be something special that they could build, you know, the next generation of, of Patriots dominance. And if I told you that six months ago or five months ago, 
I think most Patriots fans would be excited about that. Like that idea of combining concepts from a bunch of really successful offensive systems, that, that does sound great on paper. In practice, it's been messy and it's moving a lot slower than I think most people anticipated. So that is finally, and here we are, August 30th, yesterday when we got that answer, that is finally the first time we got a coherent answer as to what is happening with the Patriots offense. Henry says the Patriots are trying to build an offense that is a hybrid of what Belichick likes, what the Rams do with Sean McVay, and what the 49ers do with Kyle Shanahan. And I can only imagine that that's a has elements of no huddle, a lot of outside zone running, what we've heard about there, kind of more bouncing things outside. We see the jobs the Rams and 49ers do offensively, so I assume that this new offense would, in theory, allow Patriots players to play fast and would also get more guys open in space. So finally, now at least we have an answer that makes sense. Belichick is looking for, as Henry calls it, that love child between the three offenses that's going to combine elements of all of them. And you can. Henry's right. You can picture in your head. That sounds pretty good, right? Patriots offenses have been good in the past. Rams offense is great. 49ers offense is great. So it all it all sounds good on paper. The problem with all of it is this. As Henry correctly pointed out yesterday, the Patriots are trying to teach McVay concepts and they're trying to teach Shanahan concepts without having any McShay or Shanahan disciples on the staff. That is the epitome of arrogance. And I don't usually call Belichick arrogant. Colin Cowherd says, oh, that's Belichick being arrogant. I don't usually go that way, but this is right in that realm. Belichick, of course, has seen the the, uh, McVay and Shanahan offenses. He's coached against them. And, yeah, he's even stopped them before. But that doesn't mean he knows every single thing about it. He does know some of the limitations, but he doesn't have all the things down that make those offenses a success. So here we have Bill Belichick, who doesn't know everything about the McVay and Shanahan offenses. Here we have Joe Judge and Matt Patricia, who know even less and have never taught this before. They've never been in a system that have used it, and they're the ones who are in charge of showing it and teaching it. That is a problem. Okay, look, I took social studies in high school. I know a little bit about about history. I can't go and teach it tomorrow. That that's what the Patriots are trying to do here. It's no wonder the offensive line looks lost. It's no wonder the quarterback has looked lost. It's all now making sense in that regard. This is the problem with the Patriots having turned the offense over to Judge and Matt Patricia. We are teaching You are having guys teach concepts that have never taught these concepts before. That is a problem. You have guys doing dual responsibilities. Joe Judge needs to try to teach this offense and coach the quarterbacks. Matt Patricia needs to try to teach this offense and call the plays and coach the offensive line. Bill Belichick has to try to figure out timeouts and injuries and personnel and talk to the defense and these guys are spread too thin and they're not knowledgeable enough about it. And that 
all is a problem. Finally, Henry gave us the answer. I asked, why do they have to change the offense? And Henry says, look, the concept sounds pretty good. And he's right, it does. Hey, best offense in the best offensive minds in the league are McVeigh and Shanahan. We're going to take from them combined with our own thing. That does that sounds great. You don't have the personnel that some of them have, and you don't have the coaching brain trust that those guys have. That is a problem. 802-585-3026. Uh Peter in Williston, the fact Belichick refused or chose to not hire any offensive coaches outside of the Pats family also reeks of the arrogance you point out, Brady. Yeah, exactly. If if they had brought in a McShay or excuse me, a McVay or Shanahan disciple, I would have been okay with them changing the offense, right? Seahawks did it last year. They brought in Shane Waldron as our offensive coordinator. He had been the, the guy with the Rams. Like it, it, it does take a little time. We saw it last year with the Seahawks, who weren't great. It does take some time, but at least they had a guy implementing it who knew it. They have, they don't have that right now. The other thing about the offense that I want to get to that I gathered from Henry is this. In addition to just trying to take concepts from two successful offenses, the Patriots are looking to build a plug-and-play system. In the past, the Patriots had this graduate-level offense I've spoken about with Josh McDaniels and Tom Brady. Guys had trouble getting it. All the way back to Reggie Wayne and Chad Ochocinco to as recently as Cam Newton, guys have been overwhelmed by the Patriots' offense. Bill Belichick evidently is trying to reduce the possibility that guys are overwhelmed. He wants an offense that is really system-based, where the system is easy to learn and it's easy to execute. Mac Jones doesn't have to teach everything to guys. Doesn't have to be in charge of elevating everyone because the system can kind of do the work. Bill Belichick just wants a plug-and-play system. He thinks everyone can run and he thinks can be effective. And I can understand that. That also sounds good on paper. The problem is it's taken far too long to get up and running, and it's taken far too long for guys to get comfortable. To the original point, coaches don't understand it clearly enough. The coaches are spread too thin in trying to teach it and relay it, and the players aren't getting it. It shouldn't take this long. Let's just step back and do a little history here. Sean McVay got to the Rams first year playoffs, second year in the Super Bowl. McVay comes in, puts in the system. Jared Goff, Todd Gurley and company, they get it instantly. And they hit the ground running and they roll through the regular season multiple years in a row. Playoffs year one, Super Bowl year two. It clearly can be taught quickly so that a team is up and running in week one. Zach Taylor gets to the Bengals. McVeigh disciple. First year with Joe Burrow. First full season with Joe Burrow. Boom. In the Super Bowl. Kyle Shanahan. Two years in Atlanta as the offensive coordinator. He's in the Super Bowl. He gets to the Super Bowl in San Francisco. It is physically possible for guys to get these offenses and be successful quickly. The Patriots can't apparently do that. And that is frustrating. I understand there's growing pains. I understand that there is, you know, newness here. There's also just got to be 
Like it, it, you've also just got to show some progress and the Patriots haven't really shown any progress. This is like, like Peter just correctly pointed out. This is the fruits of Belichick, not hiring outside the family. I would, if he had hired somebody off McVay or Shanahan staff, I would have championed this change. And I believe that it, the process would have gone faster, but right now it hasn't. Henry outlined it perfectly. A lot of the stuff that they're doing makes sense. A lot of the stuff they're doing is pretty good. Like Henry said, if I told you six months ago they're going to do this, I would have been excited for it. But I'm not excited that on the eaves of week one, the offense looks lost. And as I told you the other day, the Patriots cannot afford to look lost early. They cannot afford to stub their toe throughout the first month and a half of the season. They need to have gotten this and be ready to roll to start the year. Henry agrees with me also. You cannot start slow. Like last year, the, the Pats, I think they started one and three, right? So uh, they still made the playoffs. <clears throat> but this is different. This isn't like last year where they have a run of games where they can sort of make up for a slow start. Actually, this year, their end of season looks considerably more challenging than their start to season. Yeah, Henry is, he's right about that too. Five of your last six games are against playoff teams from a year ago. Three of those games are on the road. Buffalo, you're going to see the Colts, you're going to see Cincy, like, those are not, those are some of those are home, but like you have five of your last six games against playoff teams from a year ago. Three of them are on the road. It's not easy. It's not easy. You cannot afford a slow start. You just can't. Uh, interesting question here Warren in Duxbury. Do you think the Patriots being an older team has something to do with this issue? Like the kind of like an old dog incapable of learning new tricks? Well, I wouldn't say they're incapable. These guys are the best in the world, right? These athletes are the best in the world. So I would not ever say they're incapable of doing something, but I would say that a lot of these McVay and Shanahan principles, a lot of them are very collegiate and the Pats age is certainly far removed from that. The Patriots have the second oldest 53 man roster in the NFL. Most of their guys are three, four plus years removed from college and doing this, you know, maybe that doesn't seem like a lot. Maybe it's not, but maybe it is. Some guys are, you know, three, four, five, seven years removed from when they were in college and might have been employing these kind of tactics on offense. But again, guys should be able to pick it up. Matt Stafford played a decade in Detroit, picked it up and won a Super Bowl year one. Uh, uh, LaFleur, the coach of the Packers, he's a disciple of one of these guys. I think he's a Shanahan guy. He goes to Green Bay. Eric Rod Aaron Rodgers is back-to-back -back MVP. Now, yes, it's Aaron Rodgers, but guys can pick up the offense. Evidently, they can't in New England because, as one texter says, it's the blind leading the blind. It is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV. I want to get to one of the things we talked about with Tom Karen, and this is the idea that should the Red Sox go after Aaron Judge this offseason? We heard Buster only mention this in April as just kind of a one-off ha-ha. Well, now the drumbeat really is getting louder. John Tomasi of NBC Sports Boston's talked about it. Lou Merloni was talking about it yesterday. Aaron Judge is a very good player. 
I can't sit here and tell them that they need to go out and get an outfielder because all they have is Verdugo. They need an outfield bat. They need a thumper. I am tired of seeing Jackie and Franchi and Kike and everybody else. They can be a third outfielder, but platooning both spots is never going to work. So Lou wants Judge. Tom Karen said he wants the Red Sox to get Judge. Do you want the Red Sox to get Aaron Judge? 802-585-3026. I'll say this. Aaron Judge, of course, is excellent. He's got 51 home runs. He is a great player. But I believe there are better things to do with the Red Sox money than going after Aaron Judge. Judge is 30, about to be 31. He's been injured a lot. I don't want to tie up 30 to 35 million for 10 years for a guy with that profile. I just don't. Now, I'd be interested in Judge on a short-term deal. Like if he wants 4 years and 180 million dollars to go for 45 million a year for those 4 years, I would do it. Okay? Uh, so I'll amend my statement. I'd be interested in him in a very high annual contract value for very short years. He's not going to be interested in that. So he is going to want, he, he already turned down, you know, eight for 240. He, he's going to want 10 for 310. He's going to want 10 for 350. And there to me, that is something that I'm not willing to do. The Red Sox need a lot. What they don't need is to assume that level of risk. Four years, 180, I'd give it to them all day and say, hey, We'll take the four best years of your career and somebody else can have the broken down version of you. But I am not taking, you know, a 10-year deal on Judge, four of them that are good and the other six that I'm regretting. I am not doing that. For $35 million a year, I can go get Andrew Benintendi, Mitch Hanniger, and two relievers. I, I can go get Dansby Swanson and, and two good starters. Like I can do a lot of things with $35 million that aren't getting a 31-year-old guy with injury problems. I'm not trying to be cheap. I want this team to be aggressive. I want this team in on big names. I want this team and expect this team to spend big. But if you're worried about giving Xander Bogarts at 30 a big money deal, you should be worried about Aaron Judge getting double that at his age and about to be 31. Bryce Harper and Mike Trout are both younger than Judge. They signed mega deals. They've already missed significant time since signing them. I, I just, I, 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 there's better ways to spend the money. The Red Sox are going to have $100 million to play with this offseason. They should use every cent of it. But sucking up 30 to 35 of it in an off-injured 31-year-old player, there's better uses than that. They got 13, 14 players on their roster they might have to fill out. I think I could spread that money around and get a bunch of good ones rather than one great one who's also a great question mark. I get everybody who wants Aaron Judge. And if they sign him, I will come on and talk about all the things that are good that he can do because he can do good things. But I also just, I just know the Red Sox need more. And Aaron Judge is too much of a risk for me. 802-585-3026. JP and Charlotte. Brady, you are spot on right about Aaron Judge. I appreciate that, JP. And, yeah, Judge is great. There's just too many needs on this team to take on that kind of risk. I will take on risk. Do not get me wrong. The Red Sox have so many needs, I will take on risk. But I cannot do it at $35, 40000000 million a year. Carlos Rodon has arm issues. 
He's had him in the past. He, he wilted down the stretch last year. He's going to opt out of his deal with the Giants. If he wants a four-year, $100 million deal, I'd give it to him. Okay, There's risk there. I'd do it. $25 million a year for a 29-year-old pitcher who throws heat? That, to me, is a better investment than 35 37 40 for Aaron Judge. If I can get Rodon and Hanager and Benintendi, if I can get Chris, oh, Chris Taylor signed, uh, if I can get Trey Turner, I should say, and another pitcher, that's all better to me. Peter, I can't see the Yankees ever losing Judge to Boston, and that's fair. The Red Sox, I'd still be in on him at a high-value, low-year deal. I would break my rule for that, right? $35 million a year for 10 years, I'm not in on. $40 million for four years, that I do. Because I think I'm getting the best of Aaron Judge, and I might be able to win the World Series in those years. I'd still have a lot of holes to cover, but getting Judge on short-term and not killing me for a decade... That I would be in on. Ross, I would 100% agree with you. With the Red Sox, pa- uh, with the Red Sox past these type of contracts, they need something short. I mean, look, they they got shorter than with Trevor Story than I thought they were. So High and Bloom and company have found the ability to give high value and low years. I just don't think that Aaron Judge is going to do that. Uh, Tech says. Short-term deal does make sense. It makes perfect sense for the Red Sox. It doesn't make sense for Judge. That That's the issue. He's already turned out 8 for 240. He knows he's 31 and injured. He's going to want the big payday. He's not going to – like Carlos Correa at 27, 28 years old, he could take a short-term deal, right? Carlos Correa took three years and $103 million, I think, from the Twins. And he said, look. If I play out the entirety of this deal, I'll hit free agency again at 31 years old or 30 years old, and I'll have a chance to strike it rich one more time. He, Carlos Correa knew that. He also said, hey, I could have a great year this year, opt out, and go make even more again. He, It was smart for him to do what he did. Aaron Judge would not be smart. I mean, if he's 31 and he takes a four-year deal, well, guess what? He hits the, he hits the market at 35. And he doesn't get the huge money again. Look at J.D. Martinez. Now, Judge is, is Judge better than J.D. at his peak? Power-wise, yes. As an actual hitter, probably not. J.D. Martinez's power sucked here at 35-36 or whatever Martinez is. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen to Judge, but Judge doesn't want to risk that happening to Judge. He doesn't want the four-year deal to take him to 35 so he looks like J.D. at the end. He wants seven or eight years. He wants 10 years to ensure that he gets the money always. Texter says, I want to see money dumped into Bogarts. Well, Bogarts is now hitting better. He's still hitting for no power. I told you my offer for Bogarts. Five years, 125. 25 million a year. Give him an opt-out after years two, three, and four. Give him the chance to control his earning potential. You give him the long-term deal, he's got the assurity, assurance of five years, 125. But if he wants to opt out for more, he's got the freedom to do that. And I'm no longer the bad guy. That's what I would do with Bogarts. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. I got a couple very interesting texts 
on UVM men's basketball. We've talked a lot of catamounts this week because of the non-conference schedule getting released. I'm going to answer those questions. It's next on DEV. Your opinion on the sports stories of the day? Text in at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Red Sox baseball, 10 minutes from now. We'll give you the lineups here before our final commercial break. Uh, Texter on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. Awesome show tonight, Brady. Uh, I truly enjoy hearing the input and text from the other listeners. I do, too. That That is one of the best parts of this show. I encourage you. Look, if you're driving, I get that you can't text. But if you are listening at home, you're listening in a, in a restaurant or a restaurant. If you're listening at a store that you work at, whatever, send, send in as many texts as you want because – I don't have a co-host. We don't take really any calls because of the way our studio is configured. Texting is our interaction. It's more fun for me, and it's more fun for you. So I welcome your input. There is no text that that is, you know, not going to be useful in some way to this show. Saw a couple of texts later yesterday after we actually got out of here on UVM Men's Hoops, and I wanted to um, kind of bring those to light. So we talked a lot earlier in the week about UVM men's basketball and their non-conference schedule, right? 15 games. I said, I think it's a very difficult schedule with a lot of travel going eight and seven would be a huge accomplishment. Well, Texter says, Brady, this is what UVM men's basketball does to prepare for an America East title. It's not always about the outcomes. It's what the young players get out of it and the learning process that is most important. And I thought about that text for a while when I saw it this morning and, and and I don't agree. I really don't think that's the case. UVM does not schedule the way they do to benefit their young players and to get experience. UVM schedules the way they do to get as high a seed as possible in the NCAA tournament and to get as much tournament prep as they can because they're not going to get it from their league. All coaches say the season is one game at a time, and it's about prepping for the league. But I don't believe that's the case for UVM. Prepping for the league schedule is a positive byproduct of what UVM does in their non-conference. They are doing this to get tournament exposure, tournament-like experience, and to get a better seed in the tournament. We are at the point now. Like This is all the program is about. We are at the point where the league season, the America East season, is an afterthought to people. It's Everything is about the NCAA tournament. So John Becker is doing everything he can to ensure possible tournament success. It's about prepping for the type of teams you may see in March, and it's about the hopefulness of pulling one or two of these upsets that bring you up the seeding line. Right? UVM could, they could schedule patsies. At this point, they could schedule patsies and just play the league tournament and they could roll and go 29 and three probably. And with that, they'd get a 15 seed. John Becker doesn't want that. He is hopeful that they can play better competition and that they could pull a win or two and take themselves from that 15 seed down to that 12 seed, take them from that 14 seed down to that 12 seed. That's what this is about. Now this is all about the tournament. It's no longer about the America East regular season. Like, yes, you like to be battle tested, but this is a positive by that's just a byproduct of what they're doing. UVM isn't doing this 
for the benefit of young players. UVM is scheduling this way for the benefit of their program in trying to win tournament games. And the best way to win tournament games is to have won games that are like tournament games and to win games like this so you can get a better seed. John Becker knows the America East will yield you a 16, 15, or 14 seed most of the time. Getting a 13 has been a boon for this program. He wants better than that. He wants the 12 seed. He wants to be in the line, the draw, the bracket, where you can reasonably pull an upset. That's what this is about. So, no, I did not agree with that texter. Also got a fun text. Brady, which game would you most like to go to on the non-conference schedule if you were a fan? I would choose Miami. At Miami, a couple days after Christmas, that seems like the most fun to me. Going to the Bahamas would be great over Thanksgiving. But Miami after Christmas, I think that's what I would choose. Red Sox come in six under. The Twins come in six over. Michael Walker's on the mound at nine and one for Boston. Joe Ryan is ten and six for the Twins. He dominated the Red Sox when these two teams met back in April. Tommy Pham is in left for the Sox in the leadoff position. Alex Verdugo in right. Xander Bogarts is at short. Rafi Devers at third. J.D. Martinez the D.H. Trevor Story is at second. Kike Hernandez in center. Bobby Dalbeck at first, and Kevin Ploiecki is the catcher. And he bats ninth. For the Twins, Luis Arias is the DH. Carlos Correa is at short. Jose Miranda is at first. Max Kepler in right. Kyle Garlick is the left fielder. Gio Urshela hitting 268 with 53 ribbies is at third. Nick Gordon, he had the grand slam last night. He's got six home runs. He's at second. Gilberto Celestino is in center. And Sandy Leone, the former Red Sox, is the catcher. And he that's ninth. Red Sox look to salvage the series. They look to avoid a sweep. Those are things we've said too many times this year. Red Sox are off tomorrow. We've got a full show, all 90 minutes, and a very cool guest. Joining us tomorrow, Danielle Marmer is going to stop by at 545. Danielle Marmer is the first ever on-ice assistant coach hired by the Boston Bruins that is a female. Danielle Marmer Bruins assistant coach, first female on-ice coach hired by the organization, and she's a Vermont native. She's going to be with us tomorrow at 545. Full show podcast available on our podcast channels, on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Thanks to Tom Karen. Thanks to Freddie Coleman. Both those interviews soon available on our podcast channel. Go Sox!